0: Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, visit www.dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, let's tune in for this week's message. Can you say amen, Dwelling Place? Mothers are indeed mighty. They are mighty and we're glad that you're here today. My name is Pastor Craig and I see a lot of new faces and uh, just so thankful that you've chosen to worship with us today. If you uh, came in this morning and did not receive a message card, uh, you can raise your hand and our ushers would love to serve you right now uh, as you just raise your hand up in the air. And this is just a guide to kind of help you through the message today. And uh, we're excited about what God is going to speak to us. We are in week three of a series called Fighting for Your Family. Could there be any topic that is more relevant and more, a more directed human need than this? Uh, to me, I would say no. I don't think so. You know, in our culture today, we, we have really no idea what a family is. Is it simply a collection of people living under the same roof, kind of caring for each other? Traditionally, it used to be a mother and a father and children, but the traditional family seldom exists in America. It still exists, yes, but it's certainly not The norm. A member of our pastoral staff at a previous church said he and his wife were, and several children were walking through Lincoln Park as they were making a trip in Chicago, which is just north of the city. And there were two women who were sitting on a bench, and one nudged the other and said, "Look, a family." That's how unique a family is today. A family. We don't ever see families. Traditional families: a mother, father, and children. You said, Craig, what are you expecting as a result of this series? We're in week three, and we're going to move today into a subject that we're entitled A Mother's High Calling. But before we get there, I just felt the Lord really directed me this week to spend about 10 to 15 minutes here just laying clearly a defined understanding of the roles of men and women. I wanted and found myself trying to jump straight into the mothering conversation. And God just began to point me back to this. And so I want to share just for a few moments of what I'm expecting as a result of this series. I'm expecting huge miracles. Can somebody say amen? As a result of this series, I want husbands and wives to be reconciled. Not just mentally and physically, but spiritually. That maybe husbands and wives would become partners in the marriage relationship again. I'm hoping that husbands begin to start praying with their wife. In fact, next week we'll look at the power of dad. But maybe this week, husbands will begin to pray with their wives. Why can't we trust God to bring prodigals home as a result of prayer? Why can't we trust God to take singles and help them understand how as singles, that they authentically can live as sons and daughters for a holy God. They can bless God and live for God and make a wonderful contribution to the body of Christ so that they are content as singles. Why can't we trust God like that? Well, if this is going to happen, I... I want you to have two prayer requests. There's going to be two prayer requests for the remaining of this series. That's about 14 days. It's going to take prayer. Long ago, I learned that it isn't messages that change people. It's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God enabling people to obey the Word of God. And that's why every message, both this week and next week, is going to have an assignment. I'm going to give you an assignment today. Next week, assignment. If you don't do the assignment, you don't pray, nothing will happen. It will be the same old, same old. Because even as the serpent destroyed Adam and Eve in the garden, in the very same way the serpent, the devil continues huge, massive attacks against the family. There's a monstrous assault against the family in America today. And so we're not prayerful and do not seek the Lord. I hate to tell you this, but I got to tell you, listening to the truth will not change you. You must do the truth. First thing I want you to do is ask God for a miracle in your own heart. That's the first person. What what needs to be changed in your own heart? Some of you may have come to the series with some bitterness in your own life. Maybe anger. Maybe resentment. Some of you have shut down emotionally because of all the pain. I want to ask us, can we expect God and believe God to bring some healing so you can love again? Can we expect God to bring some healing so you can risk again so that you can continue to live in a meaningful way despite the past? Can we trust God for that? So the first miracle I want you to have is within your own heart. The second miracle is for someone else. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a relationship. You say, well, Craig, well, can't we have more than that? Well, absolutely. You can have, obviously, a number of people for whom you're praying, but at least two. One for yourself and one for somebody else over the next 14 days. And I hope that when this series is over, we all testify that good marriages have become better. And bad marriages have at least become good. Or, or at least on the journey to begin to become good. But it's going to take faith. It takes prayer. And it takes fasting. Pastor Chad preached last week a message called molding the foundations. You know, if a building is crooked at the foundation, then it's crooked, right? You say, well, Pastor Craig, my, uh, my family looks like the Tower of Pisa. You know, uh, my family seems to, from the foundation, to be somehow everything in the foundation kind of went wrong. Well, we're going to see how the foundation really gets off track in Genesis, but we're going to see how God rebuilds. And I want to tell you from the outset that this message is going to be totally laced with plenty of grace because it's not my intention to beat anyone down today, but to show need and then show God's amazing, undeserved grace and mercy. And that's where we're going. And I want to tell you, thank you for going on the journey. We're going to plunge right in today because we got a lot to cover. And I told you, we're going to give you an assignment at the end of this message. I'm excited about getting to the Word of God. Is anybody here today excited about God's Word? Come on, let me hear you. That was really weak. Anybody excited about God's Word today? All right. I sure hope you found your Bible. If you do, turn to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, you'll see this on your card and on the screens as well. Genesis chapter 1, not difficult to find at all. And the first thing that we're going to see in this passage in Genesis chapter 1 is that we see, beginning in verse 26, in just a minute, that both men and women are created equal in the image of God. Men and women are created equal in the image of God. Notice Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, look at the next verse, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now in my Bible... Whenever I underline something, i usually always do it in pen. Sometimes it's pencil. But I have underlined all of the plural pronouns. And God said, let us. That's a plural for God, which is a hint already in the Old Testament from chapter 1 that God is a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image, in our likeness. You'll notice it says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Male and female, He created them. Verse 28, here it is. God blessed them... God said to them, plural, he didn't speak to man or woman individually, but both. Craig, you're just splitting hairs. No, this is not unimportant at all. You need to understand because we're going to really look at these, these pronouns for the next few minutes. God said to both of them, he said to husband and wife, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, most assuredly it means personality. It involves that, but it's much more than that. It's what we call representative leadership. To be made in God's image means that you have representative rule over all the earth. Example, in the ancient world, if there was a king that was ruling or a pharaoh or a Caesar, his image would be in various parts of the empire where he personally couldn't be. And the fact that his image was there was proof that he also rules this territory, though he is not physically Present. Now, God is omnipresent. He is, of course, everywhere. But God was saying to Adam and Eve, I want you to rule the world for me. You are my image. You're my image all over the kingdom. You're my image all over the world. Rule it for me, and I want you to have dominion. Notice it says, let them, plural, have dominion over the earth, the fish of the sea. Rule it for me. Now, that means also great stewardship. This indicates that the accountability for how Adam and Eve are going to rule in the world. But the first thing that we have to understand is that women and men are created in equal value. Equal value because they're created in God's image. Very important to what God intends to do. Now, I'm sure everybody in this room is saying amen to that. But now I'm going to go into a landmine where it's hard and more difficult maybe because this is so countercultural to our culture we live in. So I'm going to need to hear from you for the next few moments. Make sure you're still there with me. You're going to want to put me in a museum by the end of this because you're going to say I'm archaic. But this is God's Word. This is God's Word and this is how He defines our relationship. Set aside your stereotype because we're headed on a trip. And Thanks for coming along. Secondly, not only men or women are created in equal value, but it's very clear that they have very different roles. They're assigned different roles. Adam's role is one of responsibility for his wife and everyone else within his family. This is found, of course, in Genesis 2. People say all the time, Pastor Craig, why does Genesis 1 and 2 give two creation accounts? It's a double account. It doesn't make sense. Well, the best way I know to explain it is this. Genesis 1 gives us a summary of creation. Genesis 2 tells us the sequence of Genesis 1. So, Genesis 2 tells us how this creation story came about. He created them. And notice here in the text, it's very clear that first of all, Adam is created. That's Genesis 2 and 7. Notice, then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living nephesh, a living soul. The psalmist David would pick up on this in Psalm 100. All that is within me, nephesh, bless his holy name, is a living creature. In the ancient world, they put a mirror in front of the nose to see if someone was dead or not. Because breath represents life. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And he opened his eyes and God's mouth and lips were coming off of his face. What a powerful image of creation. He began to open his eyes and see that God had breathed in him the breath of life. It's been humorously stated that women sometimes expect far too much of men considering their origin here. They're just glorified dirt balls. That's all men are. Just glorified dirt balls, right? But it says, The Lord God formed the man. Now notice this, that he did not create the woman back here. No, 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 no. Adam's created first. Adam's then given the command in verse 15. He said, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat it, you shall die. Note, God did not tell Eve that. God did not tell Eve that. God told man that. We will see it in a minute. In the next chapter, God says... That Adam obviously told Eve, but God is saying, God, God's saying to Adam, this is you, Adam, and because you have ultimate responsibility for your wife. You have ultimate responsibility all the way through this passage. Why? Because the husband and the dad is to be the hub of spiritual, godly activity in the home. If God is to do something, it's to start in the dad. If God wants to bring about change in a family, it's supposed to be through dad. He's to be the hub of godly activity, he's to be the hub of spiritual activity. God creates the animals. And what does God do? He brings to Adam the birds of the heaven and the animals of the field and whatever the man called them. This is the last part of verse 19. I'm not making this up. That was its name. Adam called him. That indicates his authority. Everybody say authority. In the Old Testament, you see that the ability to name something or someone shows your authority. So Adam here has authority over all the beast. He calls them and names and Then, of course, you know the rest of the story. Adam falls asleep. God chooses, it's God's idea, to create femininity out of masculinity. Isn't that amazing God chose to do that? He created femininity out of masculinity. He took the rib of man. And notice, God takes it. And you'll notice that he looks at the man now and he says, what are you going to call her? You have authority here as well. I know we don't like that. We push against that in our culture. But Adam says, verse 23, this at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God says okay Adam that's what you call her. That's what she, she shall be. Adam has full responsibility and ultimate responsibility for his wife. Yes men and women are created in the same value. Yes the woman's role is incredibly important. She's going to be a suitable help for him but in the order of authority the Bible is very clear. She is to work with him and he has ultimate responsibility for her before God. Now, I can imagine somebody in here saying, oh, wow, how are you preaching this? Well, first of all, it's in God's word. Thank you very much. But also, let me ask you a question. Why is there such a massive attack against this in our culture? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why is there such a monstrous attack against this in our culture? Man having ultimate authority in the home. Well, one of the reasons is because people confuse ability with roles. Listen to me. We confuse ability with roles. You see, people are saying, well, you mean women are inferior, Pastor Craig? Why can't these women do this? I know some women who teach the Bible better than any man. Any man elder I've ever seen. I'm not arguing with ability. We didn't say that. We're not arguing with women's intelligence or abilities at all. Let me speak to you very plainly. I think I have so far, it's even going to get plainer as we go along. I'll give you an example. Margaret Thatcher. Me personally... You obviously can disagree. I think Margaret Thatcher was probably the greatest prime minister that Britain ever saw since the days of Winston Churchill. Now, you can disagree with me later on. Maybe forgive me for my views. But apparently, I would think that there are some people in here who agree with me. But you look at that iron lady who ruled Great Britain in an amazing way. Can anyone on planet Earth question her leadership ability? Probably not. But when she gets home, she has a responsibility to compliment her husband in terms of what she's doing to encourage him. She has to be a help meet for him in the home because someday when they stand before God, she will be accountable. Yes. But her husband's going to be the one who's going to be accountable for the way in which he led his wife spiritually and brought up his children. So the responsibility will be on his head and not hers. Responsibility for her? Yes. For the nation, but greater responsibility for him, for his marriage. Even she as the Iron fist has to submit. Even she has to understand the authority of the home. She's to compliment her husband, to support him emotionally, spiritually, physically, in whichever way she can within the structure of the home and the bringing up of the children. The Bible makes it very clear that the same kind of principle applies to the church. So obviously women have abilities. Of course. May I say this? In the the early church, women oftentimes took a role that's even greater than that of our evangelical churches now far greater role. But Paul said, even when it comes to teaching, that she as teaching should not usurp the authority of a man. What is that saying? There's nothing wrong with subjection. There's nothing wrong with subjection. In fact, Margaret Thatcher was subjected, what? To the laws of Great Britain, even while serving her, even while serving that great nation. We're all subject in some way to one another. And this is the teaching of the Bible. The ultimate responsibility is to be A man and she and the home we're talking about is to be a suitable help me for him. Now, let me give you just for a few moments another reason why there's so much confusion and resistance, I think, to this issue. It's because of the misunderstanding of the meaning of the word submit. And that word submit in the New Testament is used time and time again. You say submit, I can imagine a woman saying, oh, he wants me to be his doormat so he can wipe his feet on me and, and I'm supposed to submit. So let me speak first of all to your heart and tell you that is in no way The teaching of God's holy scripture. You see the very reason that God created woman. He took her out of the side of man and not the feet. Because man are not to trample on the woman. He did not use a foot bone. He used a side bone. He used a rib. She is to walk alongside husband in life. She is to walk the journey next to him. And walking through a life partner together. The imagery of submission is never that of a master and a servant. And the Bible is beautifully nuanced at this point because even though it uses the word submit, nowhere in the Bible does it say a man can demand submission from his wife. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Well, you're a Christian woman. You have to submit to me. No, 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 no. Never in Scripture does the Bible give permission to a man to do that. But this whole thing of of subjection, it really is fascinating because it's clear instructions to men. In fact, it's a full-time job. Let me just give you a few of them. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the... That's not part nine. Full time. Uh, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Honor your wives, husbands, that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, who's who's the charge to? Dads, husbands, men. The responsibility of the man. Normally, I'll just say, unless she's been deeply hurt by men and therefore has a lot of unresolved anger, most of the time a woman will submit when she knows that her husband loves her as Christ loves the church. It's in our DNA. It's how God created us in his image. But as time goes on, I'll help you to understand that when I talk about submission, it's not master-slave. In fact, the Bible talks about men submitting to their wives. So it's this mutual kind of submission. They're one together. Now, I don't use this word fool often, but I want to use it because the Bible calls us fools. Husbands, you and I are fools if we do not communicate with our wives about important decisions that need to be made. Fools biblical fools, delighting not in understanding. I know that's not going to get many claps, but that's the reality. See, my wife, God has often led me through the wisdom of Meredith. While I have ultimate responsibility for her, I have ultimate responsibility for the kids before God, she's a wise woman. And furthermore, not only is she a wise woman whom God gives guidance to us through her, but the Bible talks about a submission called meeting people's needs. And I have to say this about Meredith. In the years that we've been married, she has spent a lot more time and energy meeting my needs than I have meeting hers. And I say that to my shame. So submission is also meeting needs. But you know, there are couples today where they're not meeting each other's needs. And I realize this is a hot topic today. They're not caring. Well, Pastor Craig, my husband don't care. We live under the same roof. We're not, we're not together in anything. He won't do anything. I say yes, he says wrong. Well, that's just the, honestly the curse of Genesis 2 because that's what he said. The enemy didn't have a leg to stand on. He would be cursed. The man would work by the sweat of his brow. Remember in Genesis two or Genesis 3? He says, and her desire will always be against her husband. You'll say right, she'll say left. You'll say up, she'll say down. Hey, we're just not on the same page. And by the way, let me just tell you something real quick. The division of responsibility in the Bible between husband's wife, father's, father's mother's is not clear. And that's on purpose. The division of labor is dependent on each home. But I will say this, men just extra ladies when the three angels come to visit genesis uh, genesis uh, what about uh, 13 14 when they come to visit sarah and abraham in the tents about she would bear forth a child and and the bible says that sarah began to cook the meal for the angels the breakfast the bible said that abraham was right next to her in the kitchen so so listen yeah, I know we're going to fight over division of labors. It's different. You do this. I do that. But, but, but the reality of it is, rather than thinking about this is yours and mine is mine, why not do everything you possibly can together? Together. We're one. Now, there's something else i got to say about this submission since it's a controversial word. This is a discerning Submission. A wife does not say, and please hear me today, well, even if my husband asks me to do something immoral or illegal, I have to do it. No, 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 no. Why? Because the Christian wife realizes she has an obligation to Jesus, and the obligation to Jesus precedes the obligation to her marriage, even the obligation to a husband. And so there are wives today. It's not just our nation, ladies. It's not just our our nation, men. There are wives today around the whole world who are Christians and who are faithful in their relationship with God, and they're in marriages where their husbands are totally opposed to their faith. And I want to tell women today, if you're a wife like that, don't you give up on your relationship with Jesus. But we're praying that the good hand of God would come upon you and you would learn by grace how to still exercise your life functions of being a helpmeet and being a support to your husband, even though you're retaining your faith, even though you're purifying your husband by your clean conscience and your desire to serve God. And we must recognize this is a deter, a discerning type of submission to God. And the point to be made is simply this. There's a huge attack on relationships in our culture that I've just been telling you about. And there's one final attack before we transition to this Mary passage. this passage of motherhood. It's this attack against femininity and masculinity. It's so huge today, folks. And I debated how I would really clarify my words here, but I want to say it with clarity. People say, oh, well, there's fundamentally no difference between a man and a woman. You know, if we give little girls trucks, they'd play just like boys. And if we give boys dolls, they'd be feeding them and caring for them. Some time ago, I was hearing Dennis Prager preach. And he talked about a liberal institution where one of the professors believed this. And in order to test it, he decided that he would give these little girls some trucks just to prove that if they had trucks, they were going to act just like boys. So he came, gave him trucks. He'd come back a little bit later. And one of the little girls looked at the professor and said, shh. He put blankets on the trucks, and they're sleeping. I don't know about you, but I got a six-year-old, and when I give him a truck, I don't come back in, he's put a blanket and a pillow, and it's causing him to sleep. And if I gave him a doll, he'd pop the head off just to see what's inside of it. Okay? Why? Because this stuff is nature. It's how God's created us. Let me just say with a lot of strength, there is this massive attack against Where women are trying to be like men and men are being feminized and that is destroying our families in America. Can we just make an honest evaluation and say that today? That's destroying our families and it's ultimately destroying the fabric of our very country. Let me say there is nothing as beautiful as masculinity. There is nothing as beautiful as men allowing to be men. There is nothing as beautiful as women allowing to, uh, being allowed to be women. Without one thinking they have to be like the other. And for those in our culture who would say that we should redefine the family where two men can be married. Where a man can marry his brother because after all he's in love. And incest rules do not apply since there's no procreation. I say with a broken weeping heart today. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. They do not know how they're destroying future generations. They don't know. So it leads us to this great subject of motherhood. Fighting for your family. In fact, this whole series comes out of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. You'll see the scripture. He looked at Nehemiah. Nehemiah looked at the people and he says, Remember the Lord who's great in all and fight for your families. Fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your homes. Not just physically, but spiritually, we are to fight. And we emphasize, of course, motherhood. And someone this week sent me some questions that were answered by second graders. There's nothing as sweet as children. Can I give you a few of those? These are humorous. The question to second graders, why did God make moms? Here's one of the answers. Because she's the only one who knows where the scotch tape is. Isn't that the truth? There is nobody in the house who knows where scotch tape is except mom. Nobody knows where scotch tape is. Here's another one of the answers. Why did did God make moms? The answer was mostly to clean the house. (laughs) There you go. More thoughtfully, to help us out when we're getting born. (laughs) Question, how did God make mothers? I like this one. He made my mom just like me. And just like he made me, but he used bigger parts. (laughs) Question, why did God give you the mother you have and not someone else's mom? Answer, because we're related. (laughs) Because he knows, and I love this one. He knows she'd love me more than any other person's mom. That's good. That's a good second grade statement. Question, what did your mom know about your dad to marry him? Answer, his last name. What did your mom know about your dad to marry him? Well, does he make at least $800 a year? Did he say no to drugs and yes to chores? (laughs) Well, I think that's very important. Hopefully, it's a little more than $800 a year, (laughs) right? Motherhood, this whole issue of motherhood. And today, we're going to look at the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and I can imagine immediately what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, well, already, Craig, I struggle with being a mother, and I feel so inadequate, and I feel like I'm failing, And now you're going to take this woman who went to heaven every night and came back every morning. And you're going to use her as an example just to load me with more guilt. Nothing could be further from the truth. Listen to me, moms. This message is going to be so laced with grace. But I need to tell you, the Mary I'm going to present to you is not the somber-faced woman that we see on Catholic icons and statues. This woman was tough. Tough as nails. She managed a blended family that obviously had a great deal of conflict. And for the most part, she did it alone. Joseph was not around. Sometimes the Mary we visualize is not the true Mary. And in the next few moments, if I could, I hope to blow every stereotype that you have of Mary as we look at the total teaching of the Bible. I want to warn you in advance, we have quite a few, a multiplicity of scriptures. And so I won't be able to turn to all the passages. But so in some instances, I'll just refer to them. Would you write them down? Look them up later, because I want you to see I'm not making this stuff up. And when this is over... As we close in a few moments, I hope that even those who are not married will be able to understand that the principles of this godly woman named Mary help all of us in the family. And they highlight the importance of childhood and family reconciliation. Number one, we see first of all the importance of realizing that motherhood is a divine calling from God. It's a divine calling from God. Do we even turn to the first chapter of Luke? It's the Christmas story. You know it. An angel comes in verse uh, 21. And he said, you've received favor, verse 31, from the God. You'll conceive, Mary, in your womb and bear a son. And he shall be great and his name shall be Jesus. He will save his people. Mary asks, how can this be? I'm only a virgin. And he says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and you'll have a created within you this holy child. He will overshadow you and you'll conceive, but you'll do so miraculously. And Mary says, may it be according to me or uh, to me according to your word. Wow, 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 right? First of all, I want you to see that raising a child is a divine calling. Was it important for Mary to give great concern and attention to raising Jesus? You say, well, of course. But you're saying, Craig, I have a four-year-old and pastor, believe me, he's not Jesus. (laughs) No, he's not. But you know what he is? He's an eternal being. Listen to me for a moment. Jesus was eternal in both ways. Our children are only eternal in one way. What do you mean? He was eternal in eternity past because he was the one who existed as the son of God forever. He was actually the creator. Isn't it amazing that he created his own mother whom he would be born from? He stitched his mother together in her mother's womb. The incarnation is mind-boggling. He was creator God. But not only that, he was also existing as a man forever. Right? Right? He became flesh. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, this man, because he has an unchangeable priesthood, endures forever. That means that God, the Son of God, will never be able to separate himself from flesh again. He is inextricably linked to flesh. That's why we see him in Revelation with a man like the Lamb with blood flowing. He made that decision to become the Son of God, to become Jesus. He's eternal in both ways, but guess this you have a baby. You have a a girl, you have a boy, and they're forever babies. And they will spend eternity in either unimaginable bliss or unimaginable horror because they're eternal children, eternal souls. That child you're raising is a valuable child, an incredibly valuable child. He's of great value because you see, he's not just a product of conception. The moment a woman conceives, she already knows, by the way, that she's a mother. God has implanted that in her heart. Come on, moms, you know what I'm talking about. Just get rid of first response or whatever you need. Okay? Mothers know that, they're implanted. What happens is the moment that conception takes place, God begins to go to work and not only create the biology of the child and the physical characteristics, but God, in the moment that creation happens, inception happens, God takes his hand and he stamps a divine seal on that child. Divinely, that is a soul. Created creator in the image of God, no matter what the conception circumstances were. I love to tell the story of a young woman in Los Angeles who at 14 years old was sexually assaulted. She gave birth to a little boy, a girl that she chose not to have aborted. Her name was Ethel. When Ethel became adult, she said she never had a, ch- a lap to sit on. She said every child should have a lap to sit on. And I agree with her. Every child deserves a lap to sit on. But many of you may know this child grows up and she becomes Ethel Waters. Those of us maybe in the room who've watched any Billy Graham crusades through the years, you'll know that every time at the altar... There was a young lady who would come out and sing, and her name was Ethel Waters. And the song she would sing is His Eyes on the Sparrow, and I Know He Watches Me. And I think she loved that song because she knew that when she was conceived, even if she was a product of, of sexual assault, that she is a divine soul and that God created her. And God has His eye on the sparrow, and God has His eye on her. I'm here to tell you, I don't care what the circumstances of the birth were. Every child that's born of God is created in God's image and has the divine imprint of God on his or her life. They're valuable. Secondly, we have motherhood as a dedication. Not only is it this calling, a divine calling, but it's a dedication. Now, this takes place here in the Scriptures in Luke 2, and I wish we had time to read it all, but, but I'm in Luke 2. I'm reading verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Jesus was eight days old. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is what happens here at Dwelling Place Church when we have a child dedication. We're presenting a child to the Lord. But in order for Mary to be the mother she had to be, she had... Several issues she needed to surrender on. First of all, she had to welcome motherhood. Might I keep in mind and remind you, she did not campaign for motherhood. That was not her choice. She did not ask God for motherhood. She simply had to receive it. She received it as a gift. She didn't ask for this. A 14-year-old girl, a virgin, did not ask to be a mother. And it wasn't easy for her to say to people, Oh, you know, I'm not married, but I'm pregnant. And I had an angel come to me and tell me that this child is divine. And the neighbors would say, Yada, 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 you adulter, fornicator. It was not easy. But first of all, she gave herself to God. She embraced her responsibility as a mother. And she dedicated the little Jesus, the baby, to God. Oh, my parents. Today. And by the way, we're going to talk to dads next week. But today I'm talking to mothers. Will you remember that when you have that child, I want you to visualize God in heaven saying to you, This is my child. Raise him. Raise her for me. Because you're going to have accountability. And parents, please, and I specifically speak to mothers right here, if you have a great deal of hurt in your heart today, if you're angry at the child's father because he's walked away, and now you're a single mom, and I could give you a 100 different illustrations. You know how complex our society is, but you listen to me, Mom. If you're angry, and you're mad, and you're bitter, please do not transfer that particular feeling that you have towards the child's father to the child himself or herself. Don't do it. Refuse. Refuse to take the feelings of resentment and bitterness and place it on the child. Embrace the responsibility, regardless of what happened, and say, God, this child has come from you to me, and you're telling me to raise it for your glory. Mary didn't know what she's getting into. Oh, yeah, of course she knew it was the divine son, but she was very surprised at the kind of hassle she had in her own family, and she goes to Simeon. Simeon was in the temple. Simeon had been waiting for over a hundred, you know, uh, 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 decades of years waiting for this child Jesus Messiah to come. And I've read this a hundred times, but I realized it yesterday when it spoke so clearly to me, it hit me with such clarity. Look what Simeon says in the temple. Notice this. She presents baby Jesus. And notice that he speaks to Mary. He does not speak to Joseph one time. He never looks at the father and says one word, he's speaking to Mary. And look what he says to Mary, his mother. He said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary, that the thoughts of many people might be revealed. Motherhood comes with its joys. But oftentimes sorrows are a part of the assignment. Can I hear an amen from parents? Mary's going to have to endure that sword. She's going to have to endure it through the heart. And as we'll explain in just a moment, she's going to have to endure it alone without her husband. What a challenge she's going to have to have. But she didn't know what she was raising. And let me tell you something. You don't know who you're raising either, my dear friend. You don't know who you're raising either. I was reading a book this week by Charles Swindoll, one of my favorite authors. And Charles Swindoll, one of the greatest expositors and preachers of our whole time. You probably heard him. He's on 1,688,000 radio stations, not just in America, but the world. Lives in Texas. Fabulous teacher. Fabulous, fabulous teacher. And I was reading his book, and he says in his book that his parents didn't really want him his entire childhood. They constantly looked at the older brother and said, why can't you be like your older brother, yada, yada, yada. They even said to him at one time, why do we have you? And I'm thinking to myself, you're raising Charles Swindoll, for heaven's sakes. And you have that kind of attitude towards him? Let me tell you, parents, you have no idea who you're raising. That's the problem with our lives As we see people at one moment in time, and we have no idea who and what they'll eventually become in the plan of God. We have no idea. We've not even scratched the surface of who God could use us to raise. Whom God would use to change a nation to mold and shape hearts. So you have the dedication. But thirdly, mothering means nurturing we see the nurture responsibility, and this falls on Mary's shoulders pretty much alone. Luke chapter 2, I wish you could read the story, but we can't I assume you know it. Let me give you a brief synopsis. It's Passover. Jesus, his brothers, his sisters are in Jerusalem. Remember, they lived in Capernaum at this time, Nazareth, and then he makes his village there, or his hometown there on the Sea of Galilee. But they're in Jerusalem for the feast, and... Um, And they leave, and they're going back, and they're an entire day's journey away from Jerusalem without realizing Jesus is not in the company. He's not there. Now, Jesus had his friends. He had his relatives, but now probably had half of his brothers. We're going to see how many brothers and sisters he has. By this point, he's 12. He's probably got three or four brothers and uh, some sisters. And so they think to themselves, well, Jesus is there. And they're with the younger children, but they go an entire day's journey, and Jesus isn't there. They go back to Jerusalem, and I'm just reading the text. It says they took three days to find him. And they're probably thinking, oh, he's over here playing in this suburb. He's over by the Damascus Gate. That's what kids do. They play with their friends, and he's nowhere to be found. What is a 12-year-old kid doing in the temple? Kids don't play in the temple. Have you ever lost a child? Uh, I was in uh, Target on Monday. I was with my parents, and Marley, my three-year-old, had walked around behind my mother in the buggy, and, my, and, and and Knox was next to me, and I looked over, and I saw that my mom was not talking, and my dad was not talking to Marley, and Meredith was on a far other aisle, and she said, where's Marley? And I said, I don't know where Marley is. And I looked, and she's not down, and my wife immediately started sprinting down the gaming aisles, right? And I'm ready. To, I'm, I'm, I don't care what I'll do. I'll bust through walls. I'll do whatever. I'll, I'll pull down ceiling tiles. I, what, you know? Imagine losing a 12-year-old at the Braves game. You would get white hair within three or four seconds. They lost him for three days. Let's put ourselves in the scripture. We just blow through it. A mother losing a 12-year-old for three days. Can't find him anywhere. Where's he at? Where is this Jesus. She got, finds him and, and she takes the lead there. And when his parents saw him, look at the Bible, it says they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father, and I've been searching for you in great distress. I would think so. And he answers and says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus was not an easy child to parent. <laughs> Woo, he was difficult. He breaks them all. What do you mean, your father's house? Your father's house is in Nazareth, Jesus. Get up. He's, he's a carpenter shop. No, 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 no. My father's house is not in Nazareth. This is my father's house. He was not easy to raise. Here's what Jesus was constantly doing. He was punting the ball to his divine origin and wouldn't accept his human origin. Nowhere in the Bible, in fact, does Jesus ever call Mary his mother. Ever. Never calls her once mother. And I use his terms of endearment like woman. Woman's not derogatory. It's a very term of endearment. He never calls her mother. They're at the feast there in John chapter 1, remember? And there's no wine. And they're saying, oh, ask his mom. And he says, "No, mom. doesn't call her mom. He calls her woman. He said, woman, what do I have to do with you? Don't invade my space. Jesus, you're tough. He's on the cross and he's dying. John chapter 19. John, the only other... Beloved disciples there. The rest of his brothers and sisters are gone. They're not there, folks. What if your brother was dying? Your brother's getting crucified. Family's not there. The only one there is a beloved disciple, not scared to be associated. Peter, the disciples have left him. And he looks, because this is the best he could do. He looks down at the woman, his mother, and he says, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. He doesn't call her mother, but he calls John the mother why because she was the physical aspect of his being but he knew he had a divine origin he was knew he was responsible to his father in heaven so he wanted right from the beginning to sever that bond that physical bond so that she would realize he had a spiritual bond because this is no ordinary child at all and I just say that to say for us we have to they had to treat Jesus differently than they did the other children. And you and I have to treat each of our children differently because each child has its own bent, its own DNA, and it's not one size fits all. Can I hear an amen, parents? You have some children who are incredibly sensitive. You look at them and they dissolve into tears. That's my Marley girl. That's all I got to do. She does something wrong. I walk around the, 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 the house and I just get in her presence and I stare at her and she dissolves. I mean, it's just like Niagara Falls. But you have other children, it takes a whole lot more than looking at them to dissolve their heart. You know what I'm talking about. I have a family member who, while he was uh, getting a spanking for eating chocolates when he wasn't supposed to, while he was getting the spanking, he reached over and took another chocolate during the spanking. Well, he wasn't Jesus. But Mary has to negotiate that. Now, the Bible does say that he went to Nazareth, he was submissive to them, and his mother treasured all these things, but he had a very unique upbringing. Don't treat each child the same way. Study the child, pray for wisdom to understand the child, and then deal with that child, nurturing him or her according to God's will. Now, we get to the difficult part for the remainder of this message. Here's the difficult part. After this incident in the temple, we never hear again from dad. Joseph's gone. You know, Joseph must have been around for a little while because there's lots of other children born, as we see in a moment. But we never hear from Joseph. The rest of parenting falls in Mary's lap. She has to take charge. There's no doubt in my mind she was one tough woman. Simeon had predicted a sword would go through her heart. And very early on, she knew that sword when Herod tried to kill every male child in Bethlehem under two years old. And she understood, all babies are being killed because of my own baby. We ever think about that before in Scripture? Every other mom has to suffer because I had a divine child see she has a sword through that heart early on difficult and then she lives all those controversies that we read about in the bible regarding jesus when the pharisees throw it in his face and say well we're not born of fornication implying he was and his mother had to sit there and accept the ridicule knowing the holy spirit she wasn't married jesus when she had you she endured it and then the fact that it was controversy in the family now, in order for you to understand how many children they had, I want to read this directly out of the Bible, Mark chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Look what they say. This is how many siblings were in Jesus' family. Where did these men get these things? He's talking of Jesus. What's the wisdom? He can, how can such mighty works be done by his hands? And notice it carefully. They said, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph or Joseph, Judas, Simeon, and are not his sisters here with us? There's all his half-brothers, four for sure. At least two sisters, because it's mentioned plural, could be more than two sisters. So there's at least six. Jesus is seven. There's a single mom with seven kids. Mary, now a young girl, literally essentially mothering seven children. Can you imagine what that was like? Who punched Simeon? It was James. No, I think it was Jesus. And Mary's like... Ah, okay, mom, it wasn't Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine, imagine that. Like, well, well, you know, Jesus is like the older brother. And you want to talk about a pristine child. He never lied. He never stole. They couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand him. He never lusted like his brothers. He never got of alignment and rebelled like his brothers or sisters. He never had a word that was wrong of attitude or dereliction towards his parents. He, he never had that. He was perfect. He's this righteous older brother. And can you imagine being a mom trying to manage that household? The Bible says his brothers didn't even believe on him when his minister begins. It's not one I'm going to turn to, but write it down. John 7, verse 1 and 2. Look at this. So powerful. They say to him rather sarcastically, Well, why don't you go up to the feast, brother? And show the miracles you can do there. Because if you stay here at home, nobody's going to see the miracles. Listen to that. You thought your family was jacked up. It's normal. It's what the Why don't you go on up there, Jesus? They're not going to see your miracles here. And this they said because his brothers did not believe in him. His brothers didn't believe in him. And there he has to manage this. It gets worse. You'll notice in Mark 3, we have this remarkable story. For evidently, members of his family thought he was insane. You'll notice starting in verse 20, it says, They went home and the crowd gathered again, so they couldn't even eat. And when the family heard it, they were out to seize him. That's his own family. For they were saying, He has lost his mind. Here's our brother, and look what he's doing, trying to make stupendous claims and gathering crowds. And we know him because we ate with him and played in his playpen, and we saw his diapers being changed. And who does he think he is? And later on, they think he's beside himself because he has a demon. He's casting out demons by Beelzebub. So let's pick up the story a little bit later. That's verse 20. Go to 31. Jesus' mother and brothers came. They wanted to take him. I don't think ever Mary doubted who her son was, but no, she was playing a hard role. It says, beginning in verse 31, and his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around. They said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside, they want you. Now, does he say, Okay, mom, I'll come out and talk with you, and I'll connect with my brothers? He says, He looks around at all the men and women, he says, "Uh, Here are my mother and brothers. For everyone who does the will of God, he's my brother and sister and mother. Thank you very much. Jesus just blows them off. He kind of blows them off. They don't understand. And Mary's trying to navigate all of this tension that develops. Because this child's not only precocious, he was a divine child and he refused to fit the mold. And they didn't know what to do with him. How do you parent him? I need your wisdom, God. Now, of course, the sword finally enters into her heart at crucifixion. And it's the most sensitive place of who she was when Jesus is being crucified. Mary shows up. She's weeping, uncontrollably there in Golgotha. Joseph's not in the picture. Virtually everybody, and I believe this to be true, believes Joseph died early on. He's simply just not a part of the picture. She has this blended family, which, by the way, is so powerful. Isn't it so powerful of a truth to understand that God trusted his only son to be raised in a blended family? That's what I said. God trusted his own son to be raised in a blended family with half brothers, with stepbrothers and stepsisters. God trusted the divine son of God. So don't tell me that God can't work through that type of situation. Hey, How beautiful is the gospel? It just sprints at us everywhere we turn, doesn't it? I mean, it just sprints at us. He was born in a barn to show us that nobody gets out, no one's you know, disapproved from this gospel. And then he, by all means, is sent to a half brother, raised in a blended family. At least six other kids. And now Jesus is dying and she's there and she'd have gladly traded places with him. You know mamas would. Every mama would say, let me get off. Let me get on the cross and you come down. But she knew that wouldn't work because she knew he was the redeemer. As a matter of fact, she knew she had to be redeemed by her son. I just want to give you that real quickly. In her Magnificat, I think I put it in your card. In Luke chapter 2, when the angel says you're going to be with child, she sings this song, Mary's song to Jesus, uh, to the Lord. And what does she say? She says... I rejoice in God, my Savior. She knew herself that the boy in her belly she would have to submit to. She would need to be saved. She would need to be redeemed. She was a sinner who needed to be redeemed just like anybody else. And there she is. She could have gone to the authorities and said, he's insane. Take him down from the cross. But she doesn't interfere because she knows enough to know that the divine will is being accomplished. And she's watching him die in excruciating pain. And none of his brothers, as far as we know, are mentioned being anywhere around. And the mother bears the sorrow alone. The sword goes right... Right through her heart. And what a sword it was. Parents there are some joys. But we know even in the midst of the challenges. And the exuberance. And the exhilaration. The opportunity of parenting. There's a tremendous amount of sorrow. That you sign up for Oftentimes, When you become a mother. Mothering is just not easy. What I'd like to do now. Is wrap all this up. By helping us understand. Three final life changing lessons. That it will be an encouragement. To moms or moms to be. But all of us. How do we understand the divine calling God puts on a single life, a, a single baby? First of all, it's clear that motherhood is the highest calling. Motherhood is the highest calling. I'm sure there's not a mother listening today who doesn't say, Parenting a child is important. Is it important? Oh yeah, it's important. What they all often don't see is it's ultimately important. Supremely important. Many don't get that. I realize, of course, there are many mothers because of tragic circumstances and, and other things. And... And things of your, your nature and your, your home and how your husband and, and yourself have decided. But you may have to work outside the home. Sometimes single moms. Sometimes because of other reasons. There are those who can thankfully work, but they work inside the home. So it's not my intention for the next few moments to load people with guilt. Every situation's different. But what I'd like to be able to do is say to moms in the room who are struggling, especially the single moms, may we as a church come together and stand with single moms. May we as a church come together and help them in the parenting process by giving of ourselves, by giving a model family, by giving in, and, and being there for them. I can't think of any job on the planet more lonelier than, than to be an adult with children and to come home and have no adult to talk to. God bless you, single moms. We honor you, single moms. We love you, single moms. But nonetheless, I'm going to read a passage from Selma Frabert about the connection of babies. I worry about babies, she said, and small children who are delivered like packages to neighbors and strangers. To storage homes. In the years when a baby and his parents make their first enduring human partnerships, when love, trust, joy, and self-evaluation emerge through the nurturing and love of human parents, millions of small children in our land may be learning values for self-revival in our baby ranks. They may learn the rude justice of the communal playpen. They may learn that the world outside of the home is an indifferent world or even hostile. They may learn that adults are interchangeable, that love is capricious, and that human attachment is perilous. And that love should be hoarded for the self in the service of survival. Again, I must say it and you receive it, please. God's grace covers all kinds of mistakes. But all the indications in our nation from the studies are that if the bonding of a baby and its mother is not a close, secure, loving bond, that child will feel the effects of their inability to be able to bond permanently when they go on into their marriage and they will deal with it the rest of their life. supremely important. Mother's not just important. It's ultimately important. And every one of you had to figure out what that means for your family. But just look up to God. Remember, God says, this is my child. Rear him or her for me. Secondly, motherhood has its, has its rewards. You've been waiting for me to get to this last part. Motherhood, motherhood does have its rewards, but they're very delayed. <laughs> They're very delayed. Where are the rewards? Well, they're always delayed. When Mary is there at the crucifixion of Jesus, the best Jesus can do is give someone charge for his mother. And he does. And even in that, there's a reward. She was faithful to raise the Son of God, so in her last days, John takes care of her the rest of her days. And I believe that he did. He cared for her. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother, says to John. And John took her into his home. That's... An awesome, awesome responsibility. I think it's time for me right there to give you an assignment. Here's your assignment for this week. I told you to pray, not just here, but your assignment. This week, I want you to affirm to your mother how much she means to you. I'd love if you'd do it this afternoon. Grab the cell phone, call your mom, call her. Don't just text, but call her. You say, my mom's already in heaven. Well, here's what you do. You find another mom in your surroundings that needs affirmation, and you honor her. You bless her socks off, not only with your words, but maybe your act of service. You honor a mom. You honor. There are rewards to motherhood. I'll give you the last two rewards to motherhood. Remember how Jesus Christ's brother said he lost his mind? Remember how they didn't believe in him? Remember how they they were literally disconnected from him? Well, how does that story end? They're not at the cross. How does it end? Well, motherhood has has its rewards because in Acts chapter 1, when all of the 120 are gathered together, the Bible says in verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's gender inclusive. I could show you other scriptures. That also means his sisters. So what happens? They've come to believe in him, and motherhood has brought about its rewards, and now Mary, oh, could you imagine? She now knows two things. My God, I never planned on saying this. But do you imagine how powerful the day of Pentecost is for, for Mary? She knows their one son will not pour out his spirit until he's glorified next to the father. And she knows her other sons didn't believe in him. And now she sits there and watches cloven tongues of fire fall on each one of her daughters and her sons from her firstborn son. How I mean, could you imagine as a mother? I mean, there, there is no denying the joy. There is no denying the, the rewards that, that, that mother would ha, motherhood had in her life. But it's often delayed, mama. It's often delayed. But don't you lose hope. Don't you lose encouragement. God has his hand on you and God will grant strength for you. Don't you grow weary in well-doing. You have no idea that every diaper you change, you're changing for the glory of God. There is nothing you do that's insignificant when it's done for the significance of the only thing in this universe that matters. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ and God establishing our family so that we are a witness and a testimony to this world of his goodness and his grace. I want to tell you, moms, what you do is important. It's supremely important. It has rewards. It has its rewards. James, the half-brother of Jesus, what happened to him? Well, he would go on. He was, in fact, the oldest, second oldest. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, would go on not only to bless the church and lead the church there in Jerusalem, but he would go on and write a book. It's where we get the book of James. And I read it yesterday, and I smiled from ear to ear. Would you smile with me? If I had been writing that book, I would have said, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and then I would have put in brackets. I actually shared a bunk with him when we grew up. We ate our meals together. But that's not what James says. He said, James, a servant of God, implying to you and me that we can have the same intimacy with Jesus that his very half-brothers did. Oh yeah, maybe you didn't live the time he did or bunk with him. But you have the exact same access to this Jesus that his own family did. James, a servant of God. He understood he needed salvation as well. Motherhood has its rewards. It has its rewards. Parents, my heart, it goes out to you. I see the struggles even in my own children as they rear Maybe it's your grandchildren. All the hassles and the things that go wrong, you don't know whether to discipline or not to discipline. You do your best, but sometimes your best seems to be woefully inadequate. You're tired, you're weary. If you're a mom with young children, I talk to my wife almost on a daily basis about this. It's very tough. You look at it long term and say, God, how can you use me? It's Groundhog Day every day. You wake up, you fix breakfast, you put juices together, they drink them. You put them up, you do the dishes. It's nonstop. You wake up the next day, you do the same thing all over again. You wake up the next day, you do the same thing all It is weary. It is weary. It's difficult. It's a challenge. But God can use us in our imperfection. You say, what's the secret of parenting? Here it is. God only uses imperfect parents. And the reason he does is because that's all he's got. That's all he's got to work with. Imperfect parents. And I want to tell you today, we might be surprised someday that the rewards of parenthood exist in the future even when we can't see them now. What's the bottom line, Craig? Mary raised a Savior. We get the opportunity of raising children who love that Savior. Who worship that Savior. And here's the beautiful picture. We'll surround the throne one day. With us worshiping that Savior. Third Johnny said. There is no greater joy. Than to know what your children are walking in truth. So I end with this verse in Proverbs 23 and 26. He said my son give me your heart. Not give me your behavior. Give me your heart. I'm going to spend a practical teaching. If you're in a marriage retreat on this Subject of how to practically win your child's heart. Because why? If you'll win your child's heart, you don't need to be targeting your child's behavior. You target your child's heart. Your behavior will follow when you get their heart. You target their heart. God, I want their heart. I want to know who holds their heart. He said, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. I don't have time to go there, but there are really five ways to gain their heart. And this is directly seen out of 2 Samuel 15, 1 and 6, when Absalom, the Bible says, gain the hearts of all the people of Israel. How did he do it? David was king and he took them. How did he do it? He did it through these five steps. You can read them verses 1 through 6. But it's also a prescription of how we win our children's heart. What do we do? We invest significant time in the relationship. We take an interest in their world. You involve yourself in your kids' world when they're young. And they'll involve you in their world when they're old. You take time to listen. You ask questions. Offer kind words that show sincere empathy. My wife tells me this every day. Would you please say words that just validate my feelings? When I tell you my feeling, I don't want any solution. I know you're wired to solutions, but just tell me it's okay that I feel like I feel. Empathy. Your children want the same thing. They don't want a lesson every time. They want empathy. We must use meaningful touch in an appropriate way. He touched them. In fact, the Bible says Absalom kissed their hands and bowed every time a person came in the community. And their hearts were one. And then we must bathe our kids in unconditional love. I want to end with a simple video today. This video shows of a mom who is so concerned about who holds her daughter's heart. Remember, my son, let me have your heart. Daughter, let me have your heart. Proverbs 23, 26. I want you to see how she goes on a quest, a discovery, a journey to find out who holds her daughter's heart. I want you to watch this quick video.
1: Well, you know, here at GMA, we are aware that there are, well, incredible stories playing out every day in your hometown, so we're always on the lookout for the great things your local ABC stations are doing, and this next story touched everyone on our staff so much that we wanted to share it with you directly from our Dallas station, WFAA, and its reporter, Gary Reeves. sunrise over the Phoenix suburbs. Todd and Tara Storch are here to continue the mission they began in March, the day their daughter Taylor, just 13, died in a Colorado ski accident, the day they decided to donate her organs. I don't know. Excited is not the correct or right word. The Storchers say they came here because they had to. Their daughter may be deceased, but her heart lives on in the Valley of the Sun. It's the thing that's been on Tara's mind since day one.
0: Hearing Taylor's heartbeat. That's really what I've wanted since the very beginning is to find who has her heart um, and have
1: a connection with that person. That person is Patricia Winters. Married to Joe, she's a nurse at age 40, just one year younger than Tara. And they're both now raising two children. Her heart started failing five years ago, after the birth of her second son. I felt like I wasn't going to last very long. Um, I was sleeping pretty much 18 hours a day and could hardly really do anything other than lay in bed. It was pretty pathetic. She was too weak to take care of her boys. Taylor's heart lets her be mom again. The boys are finally, I think, kind of really trusting of me again and enjoying their mom. Terrace challenge is learning to be mom to just two.
0: Just trying to find a new normal without having
1: the missing piece of our five piece puzzle. Transplant alliances are cautious about telling recipients who their donors are, but using the internet, friends figured it out in just hours, and that still troubles Patricia. Well,
0: knowing that she was 13, I mean, that within itself was hard. But seeing Taylor's picture
1: and then in a few days looking at the YouTubes and all that stuff, it was just, it just gave me that sinking feeling even more. Online, she followed the Storch's story on TaylorsGift.org. That's the website of the foundation Todd started to encourage organ donations. There, she saw a link to our story.
0: I can't wait till I'm able to hug the person that has her heart.
1: That encouraged Patricia to reach out. By email, the two moms built a special bond. Tara and and Patricia have been texting and emailing. They had their first conversation um, a day or two ago on the phone. Both couples face the meeting excited, yet nervous. I think it'll be good. I really do. It will be. It'll be tough, but it'll be good. The Storches finally pull up at Patricia's door. (laughs) (laughs) The moms hug heart to heart for almost a minute. Then Todd joins them for a minute more.
0: You know, I know this is... We should probably talk, and but I need to hear her. Oh, yeah.
1: Patricia retrieves her nurse's stethoscope.
0: This goes around your ears like that. I cleaned it, okay? <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Tell me if you can hear it. It's so strong. Oh, yeah. She is very strong the sound of life itself. It is Taylor's gift. I am so sorry. And I thanked you at the same time. I'm so glad you're good. good.
0: Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes across this room. That's a picture of motherhood. I read of a story of a woman who was walking along with her baby in a blizzard. She was discovered later she was dead because she'd taken off all her outer clothing and wrapped her baby in that clothing. And the baby lived. You know, I just think that's a picture of motherhood. But it's also a picture of what Jesus did for us. He saw us abandoned with no clothes. He came and saw us in our need. He wrapped us in His love and His righteousness. He saved us. He raised us from the dead. And notice this, when He went to heaven, He's also going to return for us. Because He is the very wonderful Savior who saves us from our sins. Mary raised Him, but we get the privilege of raising those who will worship and love Him. Have you believed in that Savior, by the way? With every head bowed, every eye closed, you can have the assurance that you belong to God forever. If you respond today with what Jesus did on the cross, you can give your life to Him. I mentioned earlier, I was giving you an assignment. Part of it is to say thank you to a mom, encourage a mom. But I'll lay hold today of Isaiah 64 four four. those who wait on the Lord. He will act on your behalf. God will act on your behalf. That prayer is so important on behalf of those who wait for him. God can come to your aid. I want to pray right now. Father, despite the imperfection of us as parents, the inconsistent discipline we give our kids, the struggles, God, and even the rejection sometimes, we thank you that today we're here to testify of your goodness in our lives. Lord, that through, in, in spite our human failure, you use us as imperfect people to raise up a new generation. I pray you would encourage every mom, encourage every dad right now. Maybe for those even in this room who've never received Christ as Savior right now, would you grant the faith, the repentance that would enable them to do that, God. And may we look into the eyes of a child today, a child that You've given to us, and say with confidence that we are raising that child, created in Your image, for Your glory, God. I pray in the name of Jesus, strengthen mothers today. If you're in this room and you're a mother, you're a dad. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us on the web at www.dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.